listen, we are glisten, no more friction, take a seat, we are driven with ambition, no more prisons, hit, delete, abolition is the mission, these conditions, the receipt, no surrender, no retreat, always fight until we free, till we free. I just need to breathe, why not let us be, I just want some peace, should be loving me, I just need to breathe, why not let us be, we just want some peace, followed up with equity. Black is beautiful, don't you forget, not disputable, come with respect, my melanin beautiful, what you expect, black is beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So name is Chris Shell, assistant professor at University of Washington, Tacoma, uh, originally from Los Angeles, Pasadena area, and I'm an urban ecologist and evolutionary biologist. That's a fancy way of saying I like to study how animals and people interact in cities and what that means for that interaction over time. So how are they interacting to each other over time and are they changing each other and in what ways are they changing each other? And why is it important that we understand how animals and humans interact in urban areas? Because we, we all really exist in this urban matrix and the way in which we interact is not only an artifact of us having intrinsic value over these animals, but also thinking about how we coexist in a healthy environment. and the health of the environment is super important, not just for the animals that are around us, not just for the plants, but also for the people. So thinking about how we interact with all organisms within our city, even in cities that have a lot of concrete, say like Manhattan or one of the other five boroughs, it's super important to think about how do we promote an environment that allows for all organisms, ourselves included, to, to stay and live in that environment. So what would you characterize as a healthy environment? A lot of people think of urban areas as having high pollution. Um, I don't necessarily, when I think yep. of New York City, I don't necessarily think of a healthy environment. So what does that right. look like and why is that important? Yeah. So thinking about some of the basics, just access to clean water, access to clean air. Certainly cities can have higher pollution loads than say non-urban environments, but cities also are oftentimes situated near what we call these ecosystem services. So think about, for instance, if you're in a park, right? And in a park relative to being somewhere with a lot of concrete, it's a lot cooler. So those trees that are around you, the vegetation that's around you, allows for this ability to cool the environment. Rel relatively, we say free of charge, right? It's not wholly free of charge, but being able to have, say, environmental cooling or even access to food resources, the ability to have soil to grow foods and have food sovereignty through like urban gardens, all of these things that we oftentimes don't think about, but are on a day-to-day -day basis. Just the clean air that you breathe in, for instance, is superbly important. So that's why when we talk about healthy environment, we're talking about access to an environment that allows for you to live in a, in a way that you're not, say, 
coughing every five steps you take when you're walking <laughs> through an area or being able to access water that doesn't have lead in it, right? Really, really basic, but incredibly important for all life. Could you define for us what environmental racism is and how that ties into the research that you do? For sure. So think about what I just talked about with the environment, right? And what healthy environments are, access to clean water, access to clean air, being away from pollution. So mitigating or remediating the risks. Environmental racism is essentially the disproportionate experience of unhealthy environments for people of color. And in this country, our history has been specifically for people of the African diaspora and those of Latinx communities that are experiencing the ills of being in a poor environment. So what do I mean when I say poor environment? Well, think about the pollution example, for instance. There are many examples on the books before either of us were even born where toxic waste sites were co-located near predominantly communities of color. And if we're thinking about environmental health and the right for everybody to have access to an environment, if you were to put on a chart the number of communities of color that are co-located even today to say toxic waste sites or industrial pollutants, it would pass a threshold of just chance. So essentially environmental racism is stating that not everybody has the same access nor the same ability to access the positive aspects of environmental health. In fact, there are oftentimes multiple decisions made against the will of those people that put them closer to environmental harms, like say disease dynamics, like what we're seeing with COVID or say poor air quality. So leading to say things like asthma, right? Or, or greater cardiac arrest in those areas, or potentially the non-access to clean water. And in this example, Flint, Michigan, right? There are several examples like that that we could line up that say, it's, it's more often than not that what we're seeing is the artifact of say, white supremacy, white male heteronormative decisions made on the landscape where those folks don't have the ability to make that own choice for themselves. And for, for our research, for my research in my lab, the Shell Lab, we're interested in how environmental racism also influences all the non-human organisms in the city as well. So what they're experiencing is likely just an iota of what we're experiencing. And even then, it's degrading biodiversity on a global scale. So if we are able to think about how we solve environmental racism, and that's a huge ask, right? How do we then start to tackle systems of oppression? Then we start to also understand how do we save biodiversity and frankly, ourselves from not going extinct. Right. And would you say that the non-human animals in urban environments could in some way, shape, or form indicate human health um, or be some sort of indicator of the quality of human health? Absolutely. So thinking about how animals navigate and move across the landscape, some of them have kind of these touch points to many parts of the environment that give us really good indicators of what's happening in that environment. So for instance, here in the Pacific Northwest, 
There are several UW, Seattle, UW, Tacoma biologists, ecologists, chemists that recently did a study taking a look at how tire runoff is killing off hundreds of salmon for the last few years. We can tell or get you know an indication so those animals would be called these bioindicators. Essentially, think of the canary in the coal mine that whistles when there's about to be a cave-in. These salmon were telling us how toxic the water was in certain parts of the stream given their die-off. Or we can say, look at bees and their ability to move across the landscape. For, for instance, bees, if they are trying to get nectar from flowers, uh, oftentimes bees will die with their tongues out if they've ingested any pesticides that are applied onto, say, your, your lawn or you know an urban garden. So oftentimes pesticide load, it may not always correspond with income, but we can tell where the bees are getting hit the hardest within the city. If we were to look at raccoons, right? They're, the bioaccumulation, meaning how many kind of, say, poisons, chemicals are being accumulated in their tissues, we could take a look at tissue samples from those animals and determine whether or not just their general overall exposure to toxicants or pollutants is greatest in some areas relative to others. So we use all of these signs kind of in forensic wildlife science, if you will, to see what the animals are experiencing, which again is likely just an iota of what human beings are experiencing. So there are already studies that show that experience of say particulate matter 2.5, it's this real small particle that we oftentimes talk about in air pollution research, can be really high indoors and outdoors of your communities, especially if you're in lower income communities. And that exposure has really profound impacts, including influencing who contracts and dies from COVID. So all of these, right, all of these factors are more or less evolutionarily conserved. The way in which we respond to air pollution is the same that maybe a raccoon would respond, which is the same that maybe say deer would respond. And we can use all of that integrated research to understand what, what is the, the cumulative effects of this experience of environmental racism. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I love your research. It's so awesome because um, I think a lot of people don't focus on interdisciplinary research. And I just think in general, you know, people that live in urban areas, I've always lived in some urban area, whether it's been Seattle or New York, I really don't think of like wildlife being a part of those areas. And I really don't think about how we can look at the ecological habitat around us to better understand our own health. And I think that's really important. Um, why would you say that, I guess, just so that you could kind of drive it home, why would you say that it's important that we analyze and interpret environmental racism and health from the perspective of looking at non-human organisms? Yeah, I, really, it's by trade. I was academically raised as a biologist. So I think about how we conserve biodiversity generally, but thinking about doing it in cities and specifically about environmental racism is a wayfinder of sorts because we, we are able to, you know, not with rosy colored glasses, but legitimately look at where most of the environmental ills are inside of a city. And it should be noted, you know, we're talking about urban systems, but the same can be said for non-urban systems. Using this lens of 
where do we need most of the resources to be distributed in an equitable and just way? Because ecology 101, I teach my students about habitat fragmentation and how the more you carve up a habitat, the less likely it is that you're going to be able to maintain a larger number of species. And the species that oftentimes go first are those native species. Then there are the ones that help to maintain ecosystems. So think apex predators and the like, right? Then you start to reduce the amount of vegetation diversity, which reduces the amount of bird diversity. And at, at a certain point, you lose so many links in the chain that the entire system collapses. So environmental racism allows us to understand how societal historical practices and legacies have created a landscape that is highly fragmented. And if we wanna make sure that this Jenga puzzle doesn't fall over, we need to start putting the blocks back together. Otherwise, if the whole system falls apart, you know, we will be that last link to fall. And the planet doesn't really care if we're here or not. Like if human beings are gone, Earth is gonna be like, bye, that was a good experiment. It's nice <laughs> to see you, right? So for, bye, for yeah, exactly. Like bye, y'all. Like I, I don't, I don't. It was great that you were here, but now you're gone. All species are going to go extinct eventually. So it's our call to say, like, how long do we want to be here? And that's what that's what solving environmental racism is for both humans and non-human organisms. Is like biodiversity is somewhat the shield for us against many of these ills, including things like the climate crisis. So if we want to stick around for a long period of time, then we have a responsibility to solve the ills of society that are influencing that very system that we hold dear, which is our environment. Could you give an example when you said shield, you said that biodiversity shields us from the ramifications of climate change. Could you explain what you meant by that a bit more? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So think about a functioning ecosystem with a lot of different animals in it. And we'll just, we'll just take an urban ecosystem as an example. Now let's imagine in this urban ecosystem that initially we had coyotes and foxes, maybe a mountain lion that will move throughout the outside of the city. Um, so we had a carnivore guild that was relatively intact. And then we had several prey species. So think, you know, deer, black or white tail, doesn't really matter, elk that were moving again on the outside of the city, um, voles, rodents, lagomorphs, and then those are all just the mammals. So then imagine we have all of the birds that they're, they're intact, they're good to go. And they all more or less are functioning in a way that helps to say, maintain the abundance of all of the populations in a city, including things like mosquitoes and ticks, both of which are, are really, really important because of the fact that they have several zoonoses. So zoonoses is just a fancy way of saying diseases that are carried by certain organisms but can be transferred to others, including humans and our pets. So let's imagine then that we take out a good chunk of the predator guild. You're like, all right, well, we don't have large predators. Still, though, some of the prey are there. But then you start taking out not only some of the carnivores, you take out some of those mammalian uh, prey that we talked about. So take out some of the deer, take out some of the rodents, which may or may not, right? Like maybe what ends up happening is you take out mountain lions and then some of the prey go down, but some of the prey go up because there are no more mountain lions. Maybe they're coyotes, but the coyotes, they don't serve the same type of role that a mountain lion would. So deer increase and they start eating all of the native vegetation. 
as they're eating all of the native vegetation, what ends up happening is that maybe there are some birds that very much rely on that, that vegetation in order to create their nests or hide from predators. But now that's all gone. So the birds, they got, they got to balance, right? They can't be in the city anymore. So you continue to increase the amount of deer that are in the city. Maybe even now rabbits follow because, hey, there are no predators in the city. It's fair game for everybody. You get a lot of non-native plants that then replace those native plants. The birds still don't come back. What if those birds, what if those birds were eating mosquitoes and ticks and you didn't even know it? Right. What if they were taking care of that pest management problem for you and you were just going about your day thinking about like, all right, well, you know, this is a great environment to live in. It's super green. Look at all these wildlife. Now what you have is a situation where there are tons of mosquitoes. There are tons of tick. Many mosquito borne and tick borne diseases are on the rise in your city. There aren't any natural predators. So you have to apply a bunch of pesticides. But that means that you can't be out in those green spaces like you used to because of all the use of the pesticides. Maybe the pesticides don't work that effectively. Maybe there's some pesticide resistance. See how we started with just taking out a couple carnivores, taking out a couple other species, and all of a sudden go to heck in a handbasket? That's, <laughs> that's how an ecological system can be destroyed, right, in an urban environment. And we then come out of pocket having to pay for pest management services that are relatively incomplete. Oh, insult to injury, where most of those pest management services are used, say like insecticide use by the city, right? Or local governments, tends to be in the wealthier environments that are able to say, have the privilege and the power to, to really demand those resources. So not, not only are say the number of mosquitoes and ticks increasing, but now on top of it, you're saying that only a few folks get like citywide resources to deal with the pest management problem. And it just starts spiraling the drain <laughs> until you get to a point where you got a lot of disease you have to mitigate. Air, air quality has been shot because now you have a reduction in the amount of vegetation diversity. And then water quality is going to go too because those plants also provided for you a lot of, again, relative, relatively, right? It's not for, for real free of charge, but free of charge. This, these water mitigation kind of services. So they would clean the water as water would move through the landscape. So now you live in a city that seems dirtier, has greater disease, reduced biodiversity altogether. And then bills for say like going to a hospital go up or maybe you don't have access to healthcare. So that continues to increase. Maybe you have to start using more cars because there are more roads that are being built in the city. Ultimately, the, the entire point to this is like, we'll get to Wally eventually if we don't then <laughs> reinstill some of that biodiversity as our shield. It's like you just keep chipping away until we can't protect ourselves from anything. What responsibility do you feel like the local and federal government has to combat environmental racism? And do you feel like in their current understanding of climate change, environmental racism is incorporated enough considering how damaging it truly is? Do you feel that our government is really genuinely focusing on environmental racism as a major ramification of climate change or hand in hand with climate change? Yeah, I'll say to answer your second question, absolutely not. They are not doing enough. They are not doing enough. <laughs> I, um, mean, I knew the answer to the question. Right, I <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the, the first time that we legitimately started talking about environmental racism 
in U.S. policy, at least of late, right? It should be noted that during the civil rights movement and even before that, there have been conversations about mitigating the effects of environmental racism for a long time. So that's that's been around. Um, but what hasn't been around is putting that into legitimate policy. So certainly federal and local governments, state governments, they have a huge responsibility in making sure that we address this in ways that are likely unconventional to say the traditionalist environmentalists or conservation movements. Oftentimes, many of those folks would say, well, we need to plant more trees. And if we plant more trees, we'll be all good without understanding the societal ramifications of what they did. So we plant more vegetation, we plant more trees, likely not in collaboration with many of the community members that already live there. That would increase housing prices, property taxes and the like that would then essentially displace the peoples that live in those neighborhoods and then change the way in which those neighborhoods look. That sounds familiar. That's the definition of gentrification and displacement. Um, and that specific example is called green gentrification. This idea that we provide more green space in a city without understanding how that green space in creates more societal ills for those that have been customarily or historically marginalized. So the federal government can step in and say, we will plant more trees and more vegetation with community buy-in and also create policies that have rent freeze or rent control forever or pathways to home ownership or reparations in the form of land ownership that allow for certain communities to be able to stay in their community. And that hasn't been written in the law, right? Not even, for instance, the Green New Deal is in law at all, even though you'll hear from many politicians talking about how, oh, the Green New Deal caused this problem. It's not, it's, it hasn't even been signed. It's just been a proposal, right? A proposal that hasn't even gone up for a vote yet. So all of, of what has been the mainstream conversation has been about, we need to mitigate the climate crisis by individual means without really taking a look at where most of the say chemical contaminants or environmental pollutants or carbon emissions that are being generated by again, those are the privileged few. So federal action probably needs to be the thing and done like yesterday for us to mitigate these issues. Right, and I know that you spoke about gentrification before, but I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how social issues such as segregation and gentrification impact ecological environments. So you mentioned that just planting more vegetation isn't necessarily the answer. How else do we see that gentrification is impacting the health of the environment? For sure. Um, I will say that many folks, including some of the people that I work closely with or have cited, like, you know, Stuart Pickett or Naima Harris or Morgan Grove or Dexter Locke or Sharon Hall and, and Nancy Grimm, they've done quite a bit of this work thinking about how do we look at the ecology of segregation and gentrification and thinking about what we mean when we say that. To break it down in layman's terms, we're thinking, okay, there's a historically black or brown neighborhood that has several mom and pop shops, um, several say like barber shops, 
uh, schoolyards, green spaces that may not necessarily be considered the ideal green space, but it serves a huge purpose in terms of community engagement. And then there are folks outside of the city or in the city, but in a different kind of economic class that come in and say, well, we know that this is better for the environment, both locally and globally. So we should build plans to make it look better. So then you have officials come in and they use the aesthetic that, that they choose to make it look better without really any community buy-in whatsoever. It's the, the really driving engine of capitalism of, well, if we build this, then we'll get more eyes on this neighborhood to then move here, right? So when that's being done without, again, community buy-in or very little community buy-in, you start to see changes in who is in those establishments, but then where those establishments are and if they are still getting any business in. All of this is important from, say, an ecological standpoint or environmental standpoint because of the fact that if we just plant, say, trees and we think the trees are good without talking to folks that live there, one, it should be noted that not everybody wants to have trees planted in their yard, right? Even if you were to provide some subsidy for them, there are likely going to be folks from the community that say, well, if you plant trees, it'll bring more pest species, and then I have to deal with that. Um, there may also be conversations going on about like, well, if you plant all of this stuff, again, we go back to how it increases property taxes or how housing values, then what if the folks that were living in, in those neighborhoods were just renting those homes? So the problem starts to then snowball. Some of the best ways to find compromises is thinking about how do we, how do we plant things that don't perhaps promote as much of the problems as many community members authentically are talking about. Things like planting an urban garden may be a good solution or thinking about green roofs on, on non-residential buildings or thinking about ways in which we increase connectivity across an urban landscape. So y'all may have heard of or seen these greenways that go across highways, right? Where you have animals migrating now officially across a highway because they have this green space to do so, whereas a highway will be a huge barrier beforehand. If there is community buy-in to talk about the benefits of some of the green spaces, but then also, again, policy that guards against it, then we can start to see, well, what are the ways we can plant things that aren't super intrusive, but provide the same amount of value? And those conversations, again, I think are just now starting to be had, but before 2020, likely weren't had nearly as much as they needed to have been. Right. And I think you really brought up a good point when you said community buy-in. I think it's really important that people recognize that in this journey to mitigate environmental racism and urban pollution, we also need to take into account the quality of life of the people that actually live there. Um, there are a lot of white environmentalists that have savior complexes that go into urban environments and think that they're helping and really are right. just contributing to gentrification and like the further removal of black folks. I was wondering if you could give us an example with another city, um, kind of how we see this mix between environmental racism, gentrification and ecology. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll say that we have some collaborators that are in St. Louis, as well as some collaborators that are in Oakland that are starting to do some of this work where they're looking at different kind of wildlife vectors and mechanisms from squirrels 
to raccoons, to deer, and in some instances to say ticks and tick-borne diseases and how changes in that landscape as well as historical legacies of the landscape, specifically here we're, we're talking about redlining Briefly, redlining was this policy from 1933 to 1968 that just carved up cities and deemed where you could live based on your race and your wealth. So if you were white and you were wealthy, you could live in the highly desirable neighborhoods. And if you were black or brown, then you were relegated to neighborhoods that were considered undesirable. If we were to look at those historical maps, which were abolished in 1968, and then look at, say, tree canopy cover across cities like St. Louis, like Oakland, like Detroit, you end up seeing where most of the plants are. They're in those highly desirable neighborhoods and specifically trees, right? So trees kind of tell stories. And what we've seen from recent literature is that those trees, which take a long time to grow, are predominantly in those areas that were customarily white and wealthy. We're starting to see some research come out from those many cities taking a look at how that same redlining map also contributes to the amount of stress that the animals are experiencing, the genetic population structure. So what the you know gene flow across populations are, and gene flow is just a fancy way of saying how are individuals moving throughout the landscape and are they contributing the same amount of genes across that landscape? We know that it's fairly constricted given these maps. And then on top of all of that, right, some of, some of our uh, recent collaborators have been taking a look at how, say, mosquito-borne or tick-borne diseases are being influenced by the rate and the pace of gentrification in cities like St. Louis. And I bring up St. Louis quite a bit because many of those Midwest cities, St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, they all are highly segregated still to this day. So for instance, I was in Chicago for my graduate work and everybody from Chicago knows that the North side is not the South side. They're very, very different. And historically they were highly segregated with the South side of Chicago being predominantly black, North side of Chicago being predominantly white. To this day, that's still relatively the case. Most of the black residents in Chicago are either on the South side or the West side of Chicago. Um, and the landscapes also look very different based off of where the resources are provided. So I should say that like much of the work that we've been doing to review some of these pieces of literature here or there have shown or given a spotlight to much of the work, but there's still some ongoing things that are happening in many of those cities that hopefully, you know, in a couple of years, we'll have even more information about like, well, what does the physiological parameters of these animals look like, say, you know, their endocrine mechanisms or their oxidative stress, or we can ask, you know, what does their behavior look like? Is their behavior different across these different landscapes? So it's really a whole new world of, of investigation for us. Why would you say that it's important for black and brown people to know about ecology and the impact of racism on ecological environments? Why is it important that we know about this because again, as I stated when I first started this podcast, it's not just meant to be for people that identify as scientists or have a specific degree. I really want this to be inclusive and open. So why do you feel like it's really important that people be able to understand some of the connections between ecology and their health? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll say for, you know, two, two really important things. The first is that our health as a community, and specifically we're talking about, you know, the United States, but really the entire African diaspora, thinking about environmental ills, environmental racism, environmental science, you don't have to be a scientist to know that those that are experiencing most of the ecosystem disservices, like exposure to pollution, like exposure to, you know, dirty water is, is falling on our shoulders. The burden is falling on, on falling on black and brown folks shoulders to have to bear. And that's only going to be exacerbated more and more by the climate crisis. So really it's a protective mechanism being in that, that world of understanding environmental science, environmental racism, and how we mitigate it is a way of us essentially giving power to the truth. That truth being that for decades, centuries, we have been experiencing a degraded environment. And that degradation is not just at the kind of behest of white folks on black folks. It's actually influencing the entire ecosystem, global ecosystem. So we, it, it, it is, it's, it's something like survival mechanism. I think the second piece is also, it's, it's a reclamation of our history. So there are many kind of black folks that are in cities that want nothing to do with the environment. And when they think environment, they think of like Yellowstone or Yosemite, somewhere that's superbly remote. But our history shows that during slave times, even after emancipation, we were farmers, we were foragers, we were scientists that knew more about the land than anybody else. It was, again, our way of surviving. Reclaiming that narrative that we belong in nature and dispelling, and this is you know part of the, the decolonizing podcast, part of why it's so important is because we're thinking about how do we decolonize the narrative of where we exist and where we belong. There have been many traditional kind of environmental scientists, conservation biologists, way, you know, in the past and even up to a certain point in the current state that have said that human beings need to be completely divorced from these natural beauty environment systems. And, you know, come come around to find out that what they're saying is really nature should only be reserved for white men with wealth. That's it. Like we can enjoy it, but everybody else needs to be gone. So then that way the environment is not degraded. And that is a huge bold-faced lie that was told to us through unconsciously or consciously white supremacy. And we need to dispel that myth. Environment is for everybody. And it's especially given our roots for those of the African diaspora. And getting back to that means thinking about, even if you don't become an environmental scientist, how our ancestors knew the land. They knew the land in a way that allowed us to live and coexist with all of the wild things on this land. So this is, for me, also a way of expressing what, what our ancestors wanted for us, what they had taught us, but then had been lost through just being Americanized. Yeah, this is so great because this is why this is why I decided to do this podcast, because this is your expression of Black Lives Matter. This is you getting in touch with your Blackness and reclaiming your dignity and autonomy 
as a black individual. And I just want to remind everybody that that takes many forms. It's not just always marching in the streets. It's not just always talking about police brutality. Um, and it's not just always some violent video. You know, there are so many different ways in which in there are so many different ways in which racism is impacting every aspect of our lives and our environments. And I really think this is why it's so important that we have black scientists um, because we really need to recognize how racism and white supremacy is so intertwined in not just medical institutions, not just research institutions, but literally within our environment that we can see those ramifications spread across a bunch of different species. Um, that is really, really fascinating stuff. And I love the research that you do. As you were mentioning before, a lot of people see that we're really separate from the environment. And you were mentioning that that's a very Western idea, that that's a very white supremacist idea. How do you feel that Black people can get more in touch with their environment? Yeah, it, just really valuing everything that's already a part of your environment, even if you're in a really urbanized area, right? And I brought up New York City earlier, just going out and noticing the things that are there hiding in plain sight. For instance, have you noticed the different types of birds that live in your environment? If you live in a city, chances are you have more than one species. Yeah, certainly you see those little brown birds, they're called house sparrows that hop around on the ground. But notice what they do. Notice how they behave with each other right? They, they are really tenacious creatures or the pigeons, right? I think everybody has uh, a lot of experiences with pigeons and many of them are not pleasant, but pigeons are super <laughs> smart too. And they also have these really incredible behaviors, squirrels. All, I'm sure folks okay, have seen can squirrels. We, just, we, we, we have to talk about the seagulls for a second. Oh yeah, the seagulls, of course. I don't know yeah. what is up with the seagulls out here in Seattle. Okay, they will <laughs> fight. They are huge. Like if you go down by the water, I, I think it's really fascinating when you really think about it because seagulls eat a lot of like human waste yep. too. So that, I don't, yeah, I don't even know. That's... And and even certain seagulls, they have certain favorite foods, just like human beings do. So I have colleagues who have done work on seagulls and talk about how certain seagulls in experimental studies they've done only have a taste for French fries and not birdseed, or they only have a taste for a specific like fast food that's really close to them. And even that is remarkable to just be able to have that connection with organisms, any of, say, say, you know, you, you really are huge on in and out, but not so much on like, you know, steak shack or something like that. Um, I'm sure I got that wrong. Anyway, the point is you build these associations with food, just like the way other animals build associations with food. So just, just going outside and, and just looking around, hearing what you hear, seeing what you see, smell what you smell, right? And, and take that all in. You don't have to go to the Okavango Delta in order to be able <laughs> to experience nature. You can experience it right in your own backyard. And it exists. It already exists. Even when you think you are away from nature, nah, you're in it because there's no way you can't be in it. You breathe in oxygen, right? And oxygen goes throughout the, the global environment. There's carbon dioxide around us. It doesn't stay in this one area, right? Matter 
certainly transforms, but it's never lost. Like that's one of the fundamental principles of biology and physics. So knowing that means kind of the butterfly effect. Like what you do here matters elsewhere and what happens elsewhere matters to you right where you are. So we are connected to nature, whether we believe it or not, it's happened. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I guess just to wrap up, is there anything that you're working on currently that you're super interested in? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm getting ready to, to launch some work here in California across really most of the major kind of urban areas. And some of the students that are working in the lab are really interested in how do we mitigate human carnivore conflict and what does that mean as the animals move across the landscape, but then also interact with different peoples. So one of the biggest projects that we're hoping to launch here is that a lot of human wildlife coexistence is 99% how do we talk to people of different groups, of different communities, of different affiliations, of different identities. Because group work in this project of coexistence is the way that we'll get to where we need to be to say save biodiversity. But it also means that the strategies that we use for a predominantly white community versus a predominantly say black community are very different. So how do we get all folks involved in the science, but then also how do we start to think about how we take back the science? How do we take back the science from it just being a publish or perish academic mentality and have it be something where we do co-production in a way that all community members in or outside of our academic halls are able to participate and participate in a way that really is enriching wherever you are on the spectrum. So for instance, I have two small children and both of them, they would consider themselves little urban gardeners because they, they can grow strawberries and blueberries and pumpkins and watermelon. And they, they know so much about the system of just how plants grow, the slugs that eat the plants, the things that eat the slugs, all of the hummingbirds and bees that are in the environment and the different types of bees that eat different types of things. And I want that, I see that in my kids and want that for all folks. And even if you don't come out saying, well, I really love bees now, you may still hate bees <laughs> at the end of your investigation of nature, but at the very least, it helps you center yourself in what is the larger wonder of nature. And you, you, you've never left it. It's always been with you. Yeah, and that's a really good point to drive home. I think that that really shows the importance of Black and also Indigenous scientists, especially in this conversation of environmentalism, yep. um, because environmentalism and animal health has really been co-opted by white people um, and dominated by white people. And I wonder sometimes if that has to do with why we're so far behind in our discussion of climate change or why we see such, um, we see such ramifications of climate change specifically in black and brown communities. I remember that when I first started my PhD, I had spent some time in a lab that was studying marine health and basically looking at toxin loads in whales because all of the DDT that was on land, even though people don't really use DDT anymore it, through rain runoff, 
ended up in the ocean. And so that was directly absorbed into the fat of these whales, which actually is causing mass abortions in these whales. So we already see these whale populations starving because we're overfishing salmon. And so now they're starving, which means that they have to burn their own fat, which means that they're burning through their fat that is filled with all these carcinogens. And so we're seeing mass abortions in whales. And then we're also seeing that by overfishing salmon, we're actually impacting indigenous communities that rely on that salmon. And so we see higher rates of diabetes and heart disease. And we see that fluctuation with the population of salmon increase or decline due to overfishing. We see that this impacts whale health. <laughs> we see that it impacts the health of humans and indigenous populations. So I just wanna encourage everybody to think about how interconnected the environment is and to continue to kind of do that research because I think it is really easy for us to separate ourselves from the environment because it's what we've been taught. But we also need to remember that in this conversation of racism, we have been taught a lot of things intentionally to keep us ignorant and to keep us from being able to advocate for our health. And environmentalism and talking about ecology is extremely important for us to be able to advocate for our health. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the, one of the things that I think, for again, for all peoples, and we're, we've been talking a lot about the United States, but certainly um, systems of oppression have a lot of influence on the natural systems that exist in those countries as well. It should be noted that the way in which we think about the environment and just it being extractive is in the long run going to be harmful to us too. So we, we have to be able to address this. And in a way that certainly a lot of folks are gonna be uncomfortable because from really childhood, we were taught that to talk about race is somehow in and of itself to be racist. And that is not the case, right? We need to be able to have these conversations because for more than 400 years, we haven't had these conversations. And if we don't have them now, it's like somebody not going to therapy when they absolutely need to because of the harmful behaviors that they perpetuate on themselves and their family members and their community members. That harm will just continue on and on and on until you seek help. We, we as a global community, and specifically as, a, as an American community, it's time for us to go sit on the couch. We need help. Right. We need right. to talk about this now so then that <laughs> way we can address it before we die, before this planet is gone and we have no recourse, right? I think a lot of folks are, are jazzed about going to a different planet or colonizing the moon, all of which is super fascinating and important. But if we don't take care of this planet right here, right now that we have, none of that's really going to matter. We, we have a responsibility right here, right now to get it right, to get it right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I appreciate yeah. the research that you do. And is there any way that people can stay in tune with what you do? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can you can either follow me on Twitter, um, just at C S C H E L L underscore Canids K or C A N I D S. Um, you can probably just search Christopher Shell and find me. Um, or you can shoot me an email, um, at least as long as my UW email address exists. The easiest way is just to, to hit me up on Twitter. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. 
please visit decolonizingscience.org to see sources for today's episode. The goal of this podcast is not to be your weekly standalone acknowledgement of racism. Put in the effort to continue your education based off of what you learn in these episodes. Follow at DecolonizingSci on Instagram and Twitter. Email DecolonizingSci at gmail.com if you're interested in speaking on the podcast or making recommendations for future episodes. Decolonizing Science is written and produced entirely by me, so please Venmo or Cash App Decolonizing Science to make future episodes and promotions possible. If someone you know is struggling with depression or thoughts of suicide, please visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org or call 1-800-273-8255.